what we've done is focused on building really what we call a digital proof network that puts the clinician at the center, that gives them the ability to manage the most important documents of their career, their credentials. Because it was interesting, they were really being left out. They're being asked to enter, enter the same information again and again. But by empowering them with a, a way to manage and, and grow their career over time and ultimately eliminate a lot of the paperwork associated with credentialing or recredentialing and reprivileging and everything that they do, that could have a profound impact. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today we have a special guest on the show, and with it, a slightly longer and more personal soliloquy of an introduction, so <laughs> please bear with me for a moment here. When my last startup spectacularly collapsed in early 2019, as startups do from time to time, I knew that there was more to my own entrepreneurial path. I knew I still wanted to build something impactful, but I was not quite sure exactly what I wanted to build. And so I set off on a journey to figure that out, a, a journey which ultimately planted the seeds for this podcast itself, uh, a story that I will revisit in a special future meta episode. Uh, but more importantly, a journey which gave me the opportunity and the privilege to co-found a company with our guest today, Charlie Lohid. The journey that I embarked on involved many exploratory conversations with founders in Cleveland as I tried to figure out where I wanted to devote my time and energy going forward and also who I wanted to build something with. And what was incredible to me then, as incredible as it still is to me now, is that if I could have waved a magic wand and picked the two specific people in Cleveland that I would have wanted to start a company with, it really would have been Lucky Tavag, who I had come to respect and look up to as a prodigious engineer, as a mentor, and as a, as a friend, and Charlie Lohid, who I knew to be one of the few people in Cleveland who had not only successfully navigated the choppy Cleveland startup waters, but who had done it multiple times over across different industries and who, as the crazy entrepreneur that he is at heart, <laughs> somehow wants to do it all again. And so to say that I felt quite humbled that both Lucky and Charlie brought me on as a co-founder of Actual with them is, a, is an understatement. But with a little bit of that context, here is some more on Charlie. Most recently, prior to Actual, Charlie co-founded and co-funded Explorus, which is now IBM Watson, in 2009 as a spinoff from the Cleveland Clinic. And in the six years since, the company became the leader in the healthcare big data and value-based care analytics space spanning 26 healthcare networks, 60 hospitals, and 60 million patients across the U.S. Prior to Explorers, Charlie co-founded Everstream in 1999, which later became the market leader in broadband and content analytics before being acquired by Concurrent, a public company, in 2005. Over there, he had served as the CTO and later as the president of the company, enabling its clients to leverage their data to exponentially scale their networks and broker better deals with content providers. And Charlie had also been at the forefront of innovation within the financial services sector, having led online banking and consumer analytics before then at KeyBank, National City Bank, and at PNC. Charlie is also an active leader in the local community here in Cleveland, serving as the chairman of the Lowheed Initiative Foundation, vice chairman of Friends of Breakthrough Schools, and chairman of the Galen Foundation and PeopleBeatingCancer.org. 
honestly, it is very exciting to have Charlie on the podcast to share his story and the work that we are doing together at Actual. I have personally learned an immeasurably great deal from Charlie over the last two years, and I hope that through this conversation, you all can enjoy and glean some insights as well. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with Charlie Lohit. Well, obviously, this is a a special conversation. Uh, it's been, I feel like, the the ace up my sleeve as I <laughs> sort of curated the stories of Cleveland entrepreneurship to tell. And I've been uh, looking forward to having you on the, the podcast, Charlie, because a repository of Cleveland entrepreneurship stories would be sorely missing without your contributions. Uh, well, thank you, Jeffrey. It's good to be here. Uh, it's going to be a fun experience here. You, uh, you know, you're interviewing me and you know a heck of a lot about me. So you, you got, you know, what all the skeletons are, uh, are buried, uh, at least in this we'll last. Pick, we'll pick the good skeletons. The good ones. Yeah. The good, not the good, the bad, but not the ugly. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll spend a, a lot of time here talking about the work we're doing together at actual, but I, I wanted to take the opportunity to explore you know, some of your motivations and, and past here, because Actual is not your your first rodeo here in the company building arena that we find ourselves and, you know, from Everstream to Explorus and, and others that, that over the course of your career, you've been able, it seems to consistently best the proverbial startup odds and, and do it here in Cleveland. And so I thought a good place to start would just be, you know, looking back on on some of those endeavors, where, where you would say your, your motivation stems from for entrepreneurship and, and what were some of those like formative moments looking back that kind of put you on this path? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I guess I'd have to go back way back and this is going to date me. <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in this entrepreneurial family. My grandfather, who was an immigrant, was an entrepreneur. He had his own tool and die and then a uh, cash register business. And and my dad was co-owner of a car dealership and a Chrysler dealership in the middle of Ford country in Dearborn, Michigan. And, you know, he had to obviously overcome not being a Ford dealer. But on top of that, you know, he figured out how to, how to create a really strong business, you know, led by a, uh, himself being a really honest guy, which I think was something that the industry and, and others were really looking for. And so I got to watch him and kind of his just incredible devotion to service. And I'll probably touch upon that a few times. I think entrepreneurs have this service gene. We really want to take care of people. And, and in many cases, we want to do things better for people, offer something that truly adds value and brings joy to people. And so I just watched my dad do that for so many years, and it was really exciting to see that. And then I also had the experience to watch my brother Doug, he was, uh, he's 14 years older than me. So I was the, the youngest of four in the family. So Doug was way, obviously way further along his career. He was also an entrepreneur, had his own business. He was focused on commercial lines insurance. And I got an opportunity to follow him along around and, and meet some of his customers. And these were companies that relatively small, a lot of times smaller or medium-sized companies that provided products or services to the automobile industry and others in the Detroit area. And I just kind of got to see him interact at a different level in a different uh, way than my dad did. Yeah. Yeah. So I got, got to get all this different perspective and 
you know, sooner or later you get, you, you go along on enough of those sales calls and meet some of those people. And somebody asks, Hey, what does your kid brother do here? Uh, <laughs> does he work for the insurance company? And yeah, at that time, I'm like 15, 16 years old. And, uh, he's like, no, nah, but, uh, he does like computers and, and that got up the conversation going like, oh, can he fix my computer? Next thing you know, I'd fix one computer, another computer. And then we built a business out of it. And then we started building software around it. And I worked in my brother's building for a long time. And so I had this experience really early on that I think was somewhat unique. And my other friends were working at like uh, merry-go-round or the chess king or some of these other stores that are no longer around. And I'm, I'm out doing that. I had a lawn service on the side as well. So I was just... I don't know. I just I think I was just exposed that way. Some could may, maybe say wired, but it, it was probably a little bit of nurture and nature. Again, I, I I just tied back to service. Like everything I did, I just wanted to, you know, bring some joy or utility to someone, and and because that's what I watch, you know, my family do, and so that's that's how I sort of got started in this, and and kept doing it through college, and then decided to spend a little time in the corporate world. Worked for Deloitte for a little while. Went to work at Key Bank, so got to got to experience at a really large company. Wound up running the technology side of the house for their internet banking, and then met Steve McHale, and that's that, that's the person I uh, I started. Uh, well, went to work at EverStream, and then we kind of did a, a a reboot on that business and sort of refounded it, and so that was a really uh, exciting time for me. Yeah, when when you and and Steve the uh dynamic duo kind of met and and you bring this kind of you know bringing joy to people perspective starting those businesses i'd love if you could just take us through you know maybe everstream and explorus and working our way to actual like what the joy you were hoping to bring to those those people you were working with were from those businesses respectively yeah well it was interesting because steve steve sort of recruited me through a friend and Mike Anders and Mike and I had worked at, at Key and Mike knew that I had this entrepreneurial gene and I was only going to be at Key for so long. Started introducing me to folks and that's who introduced me to, to Steve. I remember uh, Steve calls me up. I think he's like pumping gas or something like that. <laughs> all this background noise. It's all commotion. This is, if you know Steve McHale, he can operate a, around a ton of commotion in his life. And there he is, you know, talking to me. And I, I, I had no, at that time, I really didn't want to leave. I was kind of on the upswing there and things were going well. And he's like, uh, you know, come over here. We need another entrepreneur on the team. There were a couple other folks there, Blake Squires and Sean Rigsecker, who had started the business early on, just a month or two earlier. He's like, come on over. This is a really interesting business model. It, it really was. It was, uh, if anybody recalls, I mean, everybody knows Mark Cuban, right? Mark Cuban's one of Mark Cuban's most successful businesses was a company called Broadcast.com that was basically a streaming media company that brought, it was a centralized service, centralized station. They had a whole bunch of different stations and they subsidized it with advertising, obviously. And what Steve, Sean, and Blake had come up with is this idea that to do it locally or regionally. And they had found this interesting thread through it all that a lot of the advertising that was being sold regionally was being sold through newspapers and in relationship also with radios. And so there was this, there's this relationship within these regional areas and billions of dollars of advertising were going through it. So we looked at this and said, all right, we'll be the regionalized version of broadcast.com. Well, that all went great. That was 2000. It's about eight and a half million dollars in financing. I came over the chief technology officer and we built this thing out. We were all super proud of it. And all of a sudden the bottom fell out. That was the first 
real dot bomb crash, right? Uh, dot com bomb. You know, I think that was hard for all of us. And I think one thing I learned from, you know, from Steve as a leader was you can't consider your product itself the North Star. It's got to be the company and the organization. So what we did was, is we really started to think about, all right, advertising is hard enough to sell in any new market or new product. It's going to be impossible to sell for the next few years within streaming media. It just isn't enough demand for it in a, in a turn down of the economy like that. So we asked ourselves, what else are we good at? And one of the things we were good at is building one of the largest streaming companies in the U.S., believe it or not. We were like in the top 10 of data pushers, meaning we were pushing a lot of data out of our systems, uh, streaming a ton. And we had built data centers. We had built technology to manage all this, to streamline it, to reduce costs. And at one point, we were burning like 500000 a month on just bandwidth. So we had to figure out how to, how, to, how to manage all that. We had all this infrastructure there. We had still probably you know, $7 million in cash in the bank from our round of financing. Rather than just continue to burn through it, we decided to pivot. And that was that was sort of this rebirth, refounding of this company that was really interesting. I tell you, not everybody wants to go through a pivot, but it's not all it's not exactly a bad thing. Sometimes it can be somewhat of a cathartic thing and, and it kind of releases you from from the chains of of an idea that might have been good at the time, but just or or seemed good at the time, but just it, timing was not on your side. And so we did that, and we started to approach, interestingly enough, uh, companies that were doing a massive amount of streaming and had super, super large capital, uh, mm-hmm. and those were uh, cable companies. Cable companies uh, in telco were really beginning to push broadband, to broadband, to really have broadband catch on. You had to push video on demand and other types of services that were bandwidth, bandwidth hogs. Well, we knew about that stuff, and so we started building technology to not only help them on the technology side, but also measure their media. And that just took off like crazy. And we grew to a market share of about 50% and uh, sold to a public firm in 2015. So, you know, that was just this, this amazing ride, you know, just, just taught me about the value of it matters so much the team that you're around than the product you're building. And if you're honest with yourself and what you're hearing from customers, if you got a good team around you, odds are you'll figure it out. At least, you know, you better your odds a lot. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. I remember one of the things that you've mentioned in our, our own journey was it's a it's about the team that you build and their willingness to kind of stick it through successive failures and <laughs> eat that for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, working our way towards actual here, how does the the journey kind of transpire, you know, the 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 work you're doing there at Everstream? taking us through to explore us and how, how did that, how did that actually happen? It's like one of those things in your life, so many things build upon one another and you, and you, and you look back and say, could I have done that one thing without doing the thing before? And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe you could, but I tell you, Everstream positioned us really well in some respects. In other respects, it was interesting. It turned out to be a, you know, a blessing in disguise in that when, after we had sold Everstream. Typically, you want to stick around for a while. You, one thing that's really important, especially from an entrepreneur perspective, is is you not only want to hang in there for your customers and your and your team, you also got to hang in for the companies that buy you because they stick their neck out for you and and they're they're expecting you to, to your, your company perform. So you got to be there for them. And so 
you know, I, I wanted to make sure I was there for the concurrent comp, concurrent team who had bought our company uh, from, you know, Everstream product. So I was there about two years, but after about two years, I was ready to go do the next thing. Meanwhile, again, Steve is talking to some folks in the healthcare space. We were both bumping into a lot of the same people in health in Cleveland. Healthcare is obviously a big part of our economy, it employs a lot of people. You get to know these folks. We were serving on some charities and different types of boards and got to know some of the leadership there. It was really interesting to hear about big data. At the time, the word big data was becoming a bit of a buzzword. Interestingly enough, we did that all through Everstream. And that was interesting because it did help an industry transform and evolve. The data and analytics around Everstream in many ways shaped video on demand and in many ways was demise of Blockbuster and other things than being able to understand how to manage and get better content through data. And we looked at healthcare and we said, all right, we see these parallels and maybe it sounds kind of crazy, but there are a lot of parallels into healthcare. Healthcare hadn't really leveraged big data. There were a lot of people that thought that any individual health system, even somebody as big as the Cleveland Clinic or others that you might think of, have enough data by themselves to be able to really see patterns in patient outcomes or see opportunities relative to new therapies or or drugs that may interact in a more favorable or less favorable way. The reality is that because healthcare is so sparse, you really need to be able to have uh, look at it in a very large population set. So believe it or not, three, four million patients is enough. A lot of times you need about 25 million patients, we had figured, to really understand disease more effectively. Meanwhile, the whole healthcare industry was going under this trans it was under this transformation. It was moving towards a value-based model, meaning you don't just get paid for the services, you get paid for the outcomes. To do that, they had to have some level of actuarial understanding of the data that they really weren't they really, really weren't leveraging yet. We met some folks at Cleveland Clinic that were pretty instrumental in this process. Martin Harris, who was their CIO at the time, Chris Coburn, who led their innovations at the Cleveland Clinic, then went to Partners and now uh, Partners is now obviously Mass General Brigham. We uh, met a guy, uh, a physician by the name of Neil Jane. He uh, was an internal medicine physician there and also, interestingly enough, an informaticist. So he had built this solution that was kind of like a mini Google for uh, healthcare records. And we looked at this and said, well, this is pretty cool. I mean, Google is, is one of those tools, the search that allows us, it's pretty liberating. If we, if we add some things and faceted search to this thing, building upon what Anil and his team were done and then turbocharge it, supercharge it with a lot of data from multiple health systems, well, then that could be something that could be really appealing. We sort of got the band back together again and uh, formed <laughs> Explorers. It was myself and Steve and Anil and Doug Meal was a brilliant software engineer, still is. And, uh, and we looked at this and said, all right, we think we can solve this problem if we can convince Cleveland Clinic that uh, it's in the best interest of them and healthcare to create and allow for a model where data can be shared across multiple health systems, even their competitors, in a way that obviously protected the data privacy and, and the healthcare system's interests. And so we built that technology. And once, once we were able to prove that and, and show how powerful this data was at scale, 
that things really took off. And, and Explorers, in many ways, just exploded over the next few years. We went from starting at Cleveland Clinic that had about 3 million patients at the time. And by the time uh, I left Explorers, we were about 90 million patients in that data set. And so in 2015, on our way to thinking about what's next and, and funding the company, pair for probably either go public or, or, or something like that, or maybe another an acquisition, we uh, bumped into the folks over at Goldman Sachs. They, uh, they introduced us to IBM, and uh, in 2015, IBM acquired Explorus, and we became the first of their Watson Health portfolios, kind of that big data backbone. So that was just this surreal experience. You know, it, it brought a lot of jobs to Cleveland. We got got IBM to commit to a, a building that was being built here in Cleveland for just that. And so, you know, it was a, a really fun experience, And but just learned a lot. And I also learned a lot about, you know, the power of data and how transformative it can be for, for an industry and, and ultimately for, for the people it serves. So with, with some of those learnings, how did those kind of inform as we make our way towards the present day here and, and the work we're doing together at Actual, what you wanted to do next? Well, yeah, same, you know, same drill at, at, uh, in terms of sticking around. I had the same drill over at uh, IBM. I knew I wasn't going to finish my career at IBM, but I enjoyed working with the people and, and we had work to do and the company, uh, I really want to see the company scale. So I stuck around for about two more years. But after that, when I exited, shortly thereafter, I went on this thank you tour, if you will. You know, after building a startup and then selling or exiting it and then thinking back a little bit, you do tend to reflect. Uh, you have this, at least for me, you kind of get, you, you sort of have this feeling of, of gratitude wash over you because you just realize that there's no way we could have done this without what really amounts to a, a few dozen people from a customer perspective. Obviously, many more from the company standpoint, but there's usually not even a few dozen. There's probably about a dozen or so customers that are like, "Wow, they really made the difference for us." So I decided to go on this multi-city tour, got on the plane, go to cities, and 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 talk to some of the folks folks that who were really really early on in the sales cycle with uh, Explorus, and and things have worked out really well, obviously for all of us. So we just wanted to say thank you, and you kind of get to talking about what's next. And what I kept hearing again and again, and these were like chief medical officers and CFOs and CEOs of, of large health systems, they were saying, you know, Charlie, healthcare is so much of people business. I don't think people realize that. A lot of times people think about the machines and the drugs and the devices in healthcare, but 80% of it's delivered by people. It's, it's 18% of our gross domestic product in the U.S., and it's absolutely critical. You know, we're staring at shortages down the road. Meanwhile, data on providers, on the clinicians and people that, that provide the healthcare is really limited. It's siloed all over the place. We don't get, make good decisions about how we logistically place clinicians to meet patient demand. And uh, this was before COVID, but obviously COVID made it just painfully clear that in order to really understand how to move people into the places where they can serve patients quickly in an elastic way, you had to be able to leverage data. And so there was this clear big, there's a clear problem. And we, I saw parallels to big data here because so much of the data that they were looking for, particularly in the onboarding process, required data that was from outside their four walls. 
And uh, some of it was in, but a lot of it was outside. And they had to be able to bring this information in quickly. But everybody was sort of recreating the wheel in the industry. So we looked at this and said, okay, let's figure out how we bring, we make this a lot easier to uh, leverage data. At the time, you know, I, Jeffrey, I was, uh, I got to meet you and I got to meet Lucky. And you guys got me to thinking about blockchain. And I think the thing for me that was most interesting about blockchain was the fact that it digitized proof. It made proof durable. It made proof secure, meaning because of its distributed ledger technology, you could know that a proof came from a certain individual or person or entity, and that hasn't been changed since. And we looked at that and said, all right, if we can apply this to all of the administrative verification that goes on in healthcare, administrative costs in healthcare uh, exceed about a trillion dollars a year. I mean, that's a lot of money, right? Arguably, we could, we could redirect that money in different places. So a lot of people don't get ha- access to care. You know, if we could figure out how to reduce the costs, reduce the burden for clinicians that spend so much time in paperwork. If you talk to a doctor, ask him about the term operating at the top of my license. When you operate at the top of your license, you're basically operating like a doctor or a nurse or any type of physician. Uh, paperwork probably wouldn't be considered at the top not even the bottom. It's like been the basement and they do so much basic paperwork right now. And, and we also looked at the economics and I think that's really important for any startup, just understanding the economics of your customers and how important it is for them economically to sustain their mission and what impact your solution might have on it. So, you know, it was this process and it was, again, just talking to a lot of people and, you know, trying to be cautious, not to knee jerk, just because one or two people said something, you know, but waiting till you hear it from a number of people. And, you know, that multi-city tour gave me this immersion in this problem. And it was, it was, it was inspiring. So to, to level set there, you know, what, how do you describe actual today in an elevator pitch kind of format? That's funny because, you know, there's, there's a, it's multidimensional. So I, I, I kid with people, I think Actual's got a great elevator pitch as long as we have 1,100 stories to tell it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think that the key here for you know, why we formed Actual is really three things. And I touch upon each one of these. It's that, number one, patients need safe access to healthcare, And you need clinicians to do that. And when there are shortages and what happens inevitably is patients either wait for the care and things get worse or they go elsewhere and an issue relative to continuity of care begins to pop up. Meaning if you're seen by two or three doctors, uh, doctors can't see patterns over time. So if you're jumping around just to get, uh, get an appointment somewhere, you know, that's not good for the patients either. Uh, and obviously they need safe. I mean, many of the listeners have probably heard of the Dr. Death podcast. We have to make absolutely sure that the, the clinicians that are seeing our, our patients, our family, our friends, our children, are competent in what they can do. And there's proof of that. I think the other element of this, you know, we looked at it, is, is physician burnout, the pract- practitioner burnout. And you know, I mentioned this earlier, paperwork is killing, is killing medicine. It's driving a lot of people out of medicine. Not to mention, if it takes a long time to replace a colleague that's left and you're working additional Saturdays and Sundays over and over again, it can get pretty, it can get pretty hard. And in many cases, people leave medicine for that. And that creates, you know, sort of this downward spiral. And the third, obviously, is the administrative efficiency. Your average clinician, physician in a, in a U.S. health system generates around $9,000 a day in top-line revenue. 
So every day that's delayed is, is, is money that's gone for that organization. And most healthcare organizations are barely breaking even. And so we don't want them to go away. So what, what we've done is focused on building really what we call a digital proof network that puts the clinician at the center, that gives them the ability to manage the most important documents of their career, their credentials. Because it was interesting, they were really being left out. They're being asked to enter, enter the same information again and again. But by empowering them with a, a way to manage and, and grow their career over time and ultimately eliminate a lot of the paperwork associated with credentialing or recredentialing and reprivileging and everything that they do, that could have a profound impact. And so that's what we set out to do. And on the back end of that is what we provide the healthcare organizations they work with with. And that's uh, obviously insight for, for better planning. It's data and verified data to streamline the process to get clinicians work, to work very quickly. It's portability so they can work with other health systems and you can have a clinician at, at for instance, at university hospitals and Metro work on the same patients, which in many cases is, is a really good thing with health collaboratives. And so, you know, we look at all this and that's, that's really what is an organization we have focused on and, you know, I'm proud to say that we didn't do that in a bubble. We built that with healthcare systems that were really our co-founders, figured it out and saw it grow from there. Yeah, I think the co-development initiative is is an important one because it, in my mind, is how we kind of navigate the catch-22 of being an early stage company where in order to get the kind of customers that we want, you need to have the references that you've worked with those customers before, but to ever have had references, you need to have had the customers and it's hard to get that early buy-in for the vision. And so getting it right just kind of amounted to working with the prospective customers and the hospital systems here in Cleveland to build the product that lets them teach us you know, why things are done the way they are. They reveal to us the status quo, if, if that's a result of habit or from necessity, and just affords us the ability to innovate where the answer to that question is habit and question where the answer to that question is, is necessity. And like build the product together to a point of, of general extensibility, which I, I think is where we've we've kind of take it. So kind of just you know working through the the history of of where actual has gone in, in the past two years. So that those, that kind of you know thank you tour the the gratitude uh, journey that that you went on early 2019, late 2018. You know we kind of come together in the summer of 2019, and you know kind of fill us in on on the the blanks between then and, and then and now. Yeah, come 2018, it was pretty clear that healthcare had a real problem to solve around credentialing and all the inefficiency that came with it. That's when you, Lucky, Jesse, and I started to build what essentially would become the first prototype of Actual. If you recall, those are pretty fun days. Our first office was on the Ayers Lean Dog Boat. For those that may not be familiar with the Ayers Lean Dog Boat, it's a pretty cool floating office building slash development lab. And way before us, that boat was the Hornblower's restaurant, and before that, it was a working Lake Erie barge, so lots of history. Coincidentally, that boat was also the home to the Unify Project. For those that may not know them, that's a nonprofit that I helped get off the ground along with Steve McHale and Jim Hickey back in 2017, doing some pretty amazing things as it relates to the future of work and and getting people to participate in the economy at a greater level. Things that are all really important in our community. So suffice to say, there was a lot of creative thought going through that boat, and uh, it was just a great place to get things going. 
you know, it's, it's really fun being around other co-founders. It's just this energy. But if only half of your time is spent in the other, uh, with that and the other half of your time is spent with customers just trying to sell them on it, you know, you, you're, you're kind of missing out. And so, especially in the early days. So we said, all right, we need help. We need perspective. Just like you said, Jeffrey, we need, we need, to, we need some insight into this. We don't understand all the intricacies of credentialing and privileging and onboarding yet. So uh, let's bring some others into the startup garage, if you will, or the startup boat. And so there's really uh, several organizations here in Cleveland, University Hospitals, and, and that team were incredibly important there. We had uh, David Sylvan, who's the president of the Innovations Group, Dr. Eric Back, in the very beginning, talking about what could be here. And it, it was really interesting. And we talked to folks like Dr. Brian Rothstein about you know, what would this be like for you and, and others. It was really inspiring to hear that we were on the right path and that clinicians really needed this kind of thing as well. And, you know, so I think that was really exciting. That was verified with others, Dr. Miller and others at the, at the organization. And so we had validation, but we still knew we needed, we needed a co-founder and all this that was a customer. And that can be, you know, that sounds odd, but it, it shouldn't be. It should be more commonplace, especially in the Midwest. It's kind of our secret weapon against the coasts that have so much more money. If we can streamline a lot of the early R&D by getting it right the first time, with these kinds of people, it's really important. Metro Health was really pivotal in that as well. And, and Trish and Brittany and Julie were supportive of us there. And I think that was just really important for us to get a perspective from their side. Another startup, Higher Medical, Manoj Javri and his team were really instrumental with that as well. And they helped us really understand the staffing side of the house. And then, of course, you know, others along the way. MedStar came in a little bit later. They were a large health system in on the eastern seaboard. We got to get some really good perspective from from that group. I had worked with them in the past. You know, Melissa, Joe, and Jeff over there. MedStar was one where the head of the innovations group, Dr. Mark Smith, and you know, just again having people like this kind of wrap their arms around us, take us under their wing. Uh, because they trusted us and they knew they had a problem. It's just this exhilarating experience. You know, Jeffrey, I don't know for you, but it's it's also, it's not a burden, but it is, it's definitely a responsibility that you get up every morning with and you say, we got to figure out how to make this work because so many people are calling us. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you hear all these clinician stories, you know, part of the thing that we're trying to do is build empathy for them. And it's it's very easy to do it because it's, you see what they're doing and what they have to deal with and, it is a it is a motivating force for us for sure. Yeah, you know it's amazing. And so, I mean, you were there along with the journey <laughs> every day, right? We were you know, our first. Our, we had to get to MVP. We had to try this out on some clinicians. We started out in three phases. Every phase, we got a little bit better. You know, after seeing this a hundred hundred plus times, uh, we really did begin to build a, a really great experience for not only the clinician, but we got really good data into the health systems and in a tenth of time. And so that was enough to begin to build out the commercial agreements. Once we started signing commercial agreements last year, getting in 2021, we recognized that we had to put some fuel in this in the engine here to continue to, to grow the business. We set out to raise a round of financing that at the time that would be four to five million dollars and wound up being uh, over twice that much. And it had so much to do with the healthcare community getting behind us 
it was, you know, Flair Capital and Michael Greeley and that team. I had known Michael from the Explorers days. You know, he represented a, a lot of investors that uh, saw the value in this. And of course, others in the, in the syndicate as well, Intermountain and University Hospitals and MedStar. And, you know, these organizations literally, again, in some cases, not just giving us their time, but then giving us commercial agreements and money and revenue there, but also investment. You know, it's just, I'm going to have one heck of a thank you tour someday when this is all over again, because it's going to be, it's just, you know, it's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, I mean, so obviously we have not picked an easy problem for ourselves here. This is a, this is a very ambitious thing that we are working on uh, with a lot of opportunity to affect clinicians and, and the economics of the whole space. And it's also a place where there are a lot of people who can say no uh, to what we're doing and, and very few that, that can say yes. Um, and, and one of the kind of privileges I think of, of working with you over the last few years uh, is kind of witnessing your superpowers in action and, or at least what I perceive them to be. And one of them that I wanted to talk about was you seem to have this endless supply of what I would call productive impatience that like <laughs> lets you run through multiple and successively thicker brick walls where you attack these obstacles where others kind of feign from them. I'd love to just you know hear your perspective about how, how you think about this ability that you have in, in the context of, of what we're doing here at Actual. Jeffrey, it's funny because, you know, somebody a long time ago, a mentor mentioned to me, he said, you know, selling into B2B is, especially large enterprise, is a lot more of an emotional sale than you'd ever think. And for a long time there, I didn't really understand what he meant there. But it's actually not as logical as you'd think. I mean, when you and I go out to buy a car or a computer or a phone, we look at a lot of different specs and we say, oh, I don't want that one. And yeah, sometimes color and and, and things like that, brand matter, but but it's a lot more, you look at a lot more data. And large corporations and large organizations, there's more than just the features, functions, and data. There are, there's psychology, right? There are reasons things have evolved over the years. There's, there, are, there are explanations for the inertia that people scratch their head and say, this, this bureaucracy is killing me. And and so I think it's just really important to recognize that the, the larger an organization is, the greater risk there is of, of just dysfunction. And it's not any kind of one nefarious plan. It's just the way that things work out over time. And I think for us, one of the things that I think is really important is understanding, you know, starting with, all right, let's all get around a mission. Let's all get around a mission of, let's, we're going to need to improve healthcare. We've got shortages of clinicians. We better make it easy for them to grow in their career. And I'm not just talking about physicians. I'm talking about the 16 million healthcare workers in the U.S. that can move from aid to, to, to nurse, to the nurse practitioner and, and, and wherever, right? And you move around in your career and do the kind of things you want. That's going to be really, really important. And, you know, we, we've got to fix the data problem that exists out here because if we don't, Patients aren't, you know, like I mentioned before, patients aren't going to get served and we're going to burn out clinicians. So we can't let that happen. It's too important. And I think making sure that we root ourselves in how important this mission is helps to kind of get up off the ground after you've been knocked down because it happens a, a lot. I think the other thing, too, is from a psychology perspective is really just understanding all the different stakeholders. And for us, we've had to do that. And we're st it's still a journey. But typically, when we talk to executives inside of organizations, they're like, yeah, heck yeah, this makes a heck of a lot of sense. 
the ROI is sound. Uh, it's been proven. We can this 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 aligns with our values as an organization. Go do it. But as you get further down further down into the organization, where a lot of things are getting done on a day to day basis, they may not be motivated. They they may not be part of their because it's not part of their 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 job description. In some cases, what we do may be their job description, which can be pretty threatening. And so, a lot of this is just have to understand people and have a little empathy for the way that they're looking at it. And I think if you can do that, because a lot of people arguably do is, is a lot of manual tasks all day long. And I think all of us know in the back of our mind that that's going to go away over time, that a lot of those, those jobs will be replaced by automation. But, you know, I, I think it, you know, it gets to what one administrative person said to me once. She said, you know, when I was a little girl, I never, I didn't wake up in the morning and say, oh boy, I can't wait someday to become a paper pusher. But it sort of worked out that way. But I think the thing that, that the responsibility of any innovation company is to try not to leave people behind. But let's figure out how we also put data in front of people so they can they can move from being pure administrative to now analytical, because those are a lot of the jobs of the future. And so, you know, I think part of our success, again, any startup is you've got to have this you got to you got to think about humans. It can't just be about technology. It just can't, it also can't just be about the mission. By the way, that I just mentioned, you got to think about the humans involved in it. And that's I think the thing that's probably the toughest. And, you know, for me personally, I'm learning of trying to learn every day and pay attention to that kind of stuff because I really do think it's important. Right. I was, internally, it's it speaks to the kind of of company that that we're trying to build as well. So I I think I think we've kind of caught up to the present here. We can turn the the retrospective lens towards the prospective future and I'd love to just get your perspective less for myself more for the uh, our dozens of listeners here about how we're thinking about you know the the future of actual and the vision uh, for the company going forward yeah I mean I think you know as we think about the future of actual you know first off we are a data company we're also a networked data company that puts the subject of that data in charge of their data. You know, I think one of the things for us that's really important is that because we're built on such a strong consent model, making the life of the healthcare worker a lot easier by helping them leverage their own data and others use that data based on their terms, I think are are, are really important. And I think as we continue to build that out, I think that's going to be really key for our future as a healthcare space, the whole U.S. healthcare sector will start getting smarter about how we deploy human capital. I mean, think about it. We've got a baby boomer population that really wants to stay in their home. Just obviously everybody would uh, as long as they possibly can. And innovation is going to be a key part of that. But so are, so are people. And in many cases, I think it's going to be the future of work. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll see to an open-ended uh, closing actual question here for you. But a- anything you you feel like we should cover here that we haven't yet talked about with regards to actual and, and what we're doing together? You know, I think one thing that'd be kind of interesting, you know, that we really haven't talked about and we're bouncing around a lot is obviously actual is a Cleveland-based company and we pride ourselves in that. This is a wonderful community and I've raised my children here. Many of us have and. It to some degree echoes our entrepreneurial and ingenuity and spirit from the industrial age. I mean, the city grew as fast as it did because we figured out how to solve problems, figure out how to operationalize around it. And we need some more of that. 
know, we need to support the startups. But it's going to be interesting to watch actual over the next few years because despite as much I love Cleveland, we're probably, it's going to be hard to hire more than 60% of our staff from Cleveland. COVID and work from home has changed a lot of things. They were changing to begin with, but now it's really accelerated it. I think every tech company needs to look at this and say, all right, the world, or at least my time zone has to be a, my oyster, meaning we've got to be able to pull people the best talent we can as quickly as we can. And sometimes, fortunately, they're not going to be local. But as much as we can draw from the local community, I think it, it helps our community. I think our, our emphasis around education is so absolutely key. It's why I'm involved with the Metropolitan School District and, and Breakthrough. I think these things are really important. Education is the only way for you know, to participate in the economy. And, so, and we need these skills and we need people doing that. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting in the companies in the past where 80% has been Cleveland, 80, 90% has been Cleveland. This one could be 60, 40, or maybe even 50, 50. It's going to be interesting to see that evolve. Yeah, it, it definitely will be. But I think it's a it's a good segue here to to our closing question, which is uniform and is really about is about Cleveland and painting a collage here of not necessarily people's favorite things in Cleveland, but of things that other people may not know about the the hidden gems, if you will. So with that, Charlie, some of your hidden gems in Cleveland. Yeah, I, you know, I Jeffrey, I think one of the one of the ones is a lot, right? Food's great here. We've got great art. We've got great sports. You know, for me, uh, I need to be able to decompress, go for a hike or a run. And I've always seemed to do that along the Chagrin River. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that some of our metro parks, which I think are definitely a, a hidden gem, afford you the ability to do that. I mean, there's so many amazing spots along that South Chagrin and Squires Castle and I've, it, it's had such an influence on me that last year we decided to build a house on the Chagrin River. So I look at it every day now. And so, yeah, I mean, I think to me, that's, that's one of the hidden gems and, you know, everything along that way. And it's, it's been something that's you know, inspired me over the years. The Metro parks are pretty fantastic. Well, Charlie, I, I appreciate you very much coming on. I've, like I mentioned, I've been looking forward to this one for a while, having kind of been part of, of your journey here in the last few years, but, but hearing about it in, in the past. Yeah, I'm excited about, about where we're going to take actual, but appreciate you coming on and, uh, and sharing your story. Thanks, Jeffrey. All right, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, if folks have uh, anything they want to connect with you about, reach out, where's the best place for them to do that? Uh, you know, probably LinkedIn's the best place. Always willing and excited to connect with people in, in the entrepreneurial space and you know, happy to answer any questions you may have along the way. Yeah, yeah. I would I'd be remiss also if I didn't mention that we are we are hiring oh, yeah. at actual and so for <laughs> for for anyone listening, if, if you're interested, reach out to Charlie, reach out to myself. Happy to happy to chat about that. Absolutely. All right, Jeffrey. Well, this has been awesome. Thanks a lot. And I'll see you again in like 10 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'll see you in a bit, Charlie. All right. Thanks. Bye. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. 
If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.